Special Episode 5.1, The Development of Written Language and Literacy. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is episode 5.1, The Development of Written Language and Literacy. Next week, we're going to take a look at one of the great stories of the ancient world, the Iliad. But before we dive into that, I want to step aside for a brief episode and discuss something that's crucial to our understanding of history, and that is written languages. As I've said before, it's really hard to nail down the dates of ancient events before about 1000 BC. Part of that is because there's just not that much written down before that. And another part of it is that a lot of the documentation, a lot of things that were written down, haven't survived. If you look back at ancient history, once written languages start to really become common, a lot more stuff got recorded. So our study of history gets more and more accurate, and we're much more able to cross-reference things from one culture to another. So today, I thought we'd take a side journey into something I find really fascinating, and that is the development of written languages. And we're also going to do something a little different this episode as well. This episode will be an interview with someone who has much more experience in ancient languages than I have. So let me introduce to you my son, also named Clayton Mills. He's currently a PhD student at St. Andrews University in Scotland and studying biblical and ancient languages. All right. Hey, Clayton, welcome to uh, my podcast. I'm glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks. Glad you could be here. So uh, how are things in St. Andrews today? Things are pretty good. It's uh, starting to get cold and really wintry here, but that's kind of par for the course for St. Andrews. So <laughs> that's what, well, I'm glad to have that's you what here. we, that's uh, what we knew we were signing up for. Glad to have you on the podcast. So it's, um, it's finally, we finally got a cold front here too. So we're sort of catching up with you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but glad you could talk to us about the topic of the development of written language and literacy. I know that's an area that you've studied a good bit on. Yeah. So um, let me, uh, I'm just going to ask you a few questions and, you know, just feel free to uh, go forward with the answers. And if you have any other thoughts besides the questions I ask you, just go with it. Okay. So one of the things I've talked about in the podcast several times is that history is um, very, very sketchy before the development of written language Mm -hmm. and really hard to place dates and things like that, anything that far in the past. But I want to ask this question is kind of about that. What what do you think the world was like mm-hmm. before written language was invented, and and how were things recorded? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, we use the word recorded today, um, and it, it carries with it this idea that there's some sort of a definitive version of maybe a story or something like that. And people in the ancient world wouldn't have thought of it that way. They would have thought of, um, you know, this is the story and this is the content and it sort of lives through whoever is telling that story. In much the same way that if you go online today and you try and find, uh, like listen to a piece of classical music like Beethoven. There's not one singular definitive recording 
like there is for, let's say, some sort of modern band. You can go find the version of their song. But if you go and listen to Beethoven, there's going to be a recording from this symphony or that symphony or whatever. And people in the ancient world and people in Beethoven's time, too, would have understood that each performance is a little bit different. So each time something is told to the people, uh, you know, whatever history or narrative is being passed down, it would be done orally. And it might be ever so slightly different each time that um, recording, quote unquote, is done. Yeah. So like in the ancient world, in the pre-written era, mm-hmm. what were the kind of things you think they recorded in that sense in yeah. stories? That's a good question. It's going to be mostly stories, right? Even still today, even in our sort of information age, humans really seem to be kind of hardwired towards stories. It's easier for us to remember stories. We are better at telling them. Uh, they make us more animated. They're engaging. They're interesting. You can hear yeah, a story one time. Just a list of facts. You know? Yeah, yeah. You can hear a story one time and decently accurately retell it as opposed to a list of facts or a mathematical equation that you sort of have to really work to memorize and internalize. So it right. would have been those stories. Those are the kind of things that are, yeah. those are much easier to write down. That's right. Those things are easier to write down. Um, in the ancient world, we wouldn't have had things like... Uh, you know, maybe we we wouldn't so much have had a list of dates. Okay, in, you know, 1785, this person did this and here's this and they were born to these people and whatever. You would have understood this as a story. It would have been, you know, 3000 BC. Of course, they're not using BC. Whatever calendar system of whatever people group you're talking about, we would have just said in the time of the reign of king whoever uh, or in the time before... Abraham, or in the time of Moses, or something like that. It doesn't particularly matter to these people when specifically uh, event A or event B happened. In And if we really think about it, it doesn't matter to us really all that much today. Like, of what use is it to us that, you know, Michelangelo preceded Beethoven? Like, it doesn't necessarily help your understanding of who those people were, or what they did, or what was important about them. Right. Well, and especially like, what was the exact date of it? Sure. Right. You know, it's the, really, the really difficult some, to pin down, but it doesn't matter so makes much. Some dif- distance difference in the uh, makes some difference in the sense of chronology, like what happened first. Some of that part is important, but yes, the actual that's true. Date is much less important. Mm-hmm. So, along those lines, how hard is it to piece together a kind of? Um, I don't know, universal history mm-hmm. of the world before written language was developed. What what do we yeah. have to work with in that area? That's a really good question. It's extremely difficult. Before written language and before our ability to sort of accurately map particular events or people onto a sort of universal timeline, each of these sort of civilizations, however big or small they may be, sort of operates inside their own bubble. You've got kind of the timeline of Israelite history and the timeline of Babylonian history and the timeline of Egyptian history. And uh, the East, you know, places like China and Japan have sort of their own little bubble of historical narrative. And when exactly these events sort of link up with one another is extremely difficult to pin down, especially for us now this far removed from, from that. 
So it isn't until we start to get some reliable historical figures, like King Cyrus is a really kind of key one, because the Persian Empire was so significant, so vast, and sort of crossed a lot of these cultural boundaries, you can sort of say, in the time of the reign of King Cyrus, and that ends up, for us today, being sort of a reliably accurate way of dating all of those cultures at that time. But further back than that, um, especially really further back than that, it's extremely difficult to tell when these things are happening in relation to one another. So in relation to Cyrus, mm-hmm. like when what what was the date of Cyrus? That's a great question. Um, let's see. I want to say he was about 600 or so BC uh, that, that he kind of reigned and that the Persian Empire was sort of at its peak. This is, uh, Cyrus the Great is a recorded character in basically all of the uh, sort of cultures that we have written works from that survive through to today. Israel, Babylon, Assyria, obviously Persia, even some of the sort of uh, early Greeks, and even some of the kind of early Italians, the sort of pre-Romans, have an idea of who this guy Cyrus the Great was. And so we can yeah, say, fact hey, check on the on the internet gets your gets your date right. You're you're right around 600 BC. Okay, well, great. Um, so this is a person that we can sort of reliably map onto history, and that any of the texts that we have that mention him can sort of be reliably mapped onto that time period as well. Either that you know this happened during the time of King Cyrus. Okay, so 600 BC or if something mentions King Cyrus, we know that it was at least after that time period. So would you say that around 600 BC is the time that we really start to see mm-hmm. written language being not just developed, but being a kind of universal enough that we're able to kind of tie these language, these different languages and different timelines together? Yeah, it really depends on what exactly it is we define as language. Um, Places like Egypt and Sumeria had had a written sort of recorded history um, system for maybe a thousand to two thousand years prior to that in the form of either hieroglyphs or cuneiform or something along those lines. But it isn't until really around this point, yeah, that we start to see um, other languages develop. And it's really tied to the development of papyrus as a technology. I don't know if you've talked about that on the podcast at all, um, but papyrus being invented as sort of a writing material really sparks access to written language for a lot of these other smaller cultures. So do you think that it it spreads to these other cultures? Because, I mean, it's a native thing in Egypt, Yeah. but you don't find a lot of papyrus in Persia and in... Mm -hmm. Uh, Babylon, right? They're they're mostly working with like m- clay tablets and stuff like that. Mostly, yeah, they are. Right? And, and yeah, cuneiform is mostly written on clay tablets. Um, but once we start to have this concept out of Egypt of, hey, here's a better way to write things. It's easier to transport. It's easier to store. Uh, it's lighter. It's more efficient. We can make more of it much more quickly. And you can make sort of a big scroll or a folio or something like that, a big stack of these papyrus sheets. Other cultures in the area start to sort of do their own thing. Whether it's papyrus or not, um, 
it doesn't really matter. But once people have figured out, oh, right, a way to write stuff down that's easier and lighter and much less time consuming than clay tablets or stone carving, we're really well on our way. Right. Yeah. Well, you see some of those cultures develop things on vellum or on yeah, you know, animal hide, that kind of thing, like for that. sure. Uh, leather is another good writing material. Um, you also start to see on leather. Yeah, you also start to Got see um, cultures develop better inks um, as these cultures sort of develop and solidify. They start to trade with one another, and materials start to be a little bit more easily accessible. And you'll start to see inks of different colors or that are easier to transport or easier to store or don't degrade. Um, and it's really around this point of the sort of the technology of writing itself that a lot of this stuff starts to make its way into the modern world. They've sort of reached a sort of critical mass where the writing technology was good enough that we now have access to it several thousand years later. Right. So another piece of that, right, is probably the percentage of people who had literacy. Yes. And do you think that's something that starts to begin to take off about that same time, around the time of Cyrus? It is. Um, yeah, it's hard to pin down if that's around the time of Cyrus or a little bit before. But long story short, if you want sort of reliable, uh, widespread written language among your people, it takes a couple of generations after you have reached some sort of kind of political stability, right? If everyone's got to be a subsistence farmer, if everyone's got to be a warrior, if everyone's got to be, you know, like a basic craftsman, there's no time to learn how to write. And there's no time to mm -hmm. learn how to read. And there's not really need to. If I was a farmer and my parents were farmers and their parents were farmers and their parents were farmers, great. I've got my whole recorded history right there and there's nothing... We don't really have anything worth writing down anyway. So once yeah, you have some like, kind yeah, of... I owe you six goats or something like that. Well, and you would just kind of remember that, or maybe that would be carved into stone or something like that. Um, but once you've got some political stability, people like David or uh, sort of the Egyptian dynasties or the Babylonians or the Assyrians, you can start to develop this sort of scholar class of people who spend their lives learning how to read and write and then spend all of their time writing things and copying things and uh, translating things and, and that sort of stuff. And it just takes such an immense amount of time that you really need those people to sort of devote their whole lives to it, which they don't have the opportunity to do unless you've got the stability and the sort of capital set aside as a culture to let them do that on your behalf. Right. So you've got to have political stability. Yes. And you've got to have enough, I guess, economic prosperity mm -hmm. to justify, hey, we've got this class of people whose job is dealing with writing. That's right. Eventually that so makes its way uh, into more and more and more people. But even, you know, on in through the Middle Ages and on into the early Renaissance uh, and Reformation period, it was still very common for most of the population to be illiterate. It isn't until sort of recently modern times, almost sort of post-industrial revolution, that the expectation is that sort of everyone in your society can read and write. And it's a very, very, very small fraction of people who don't know how to. Yeah, and that's an interesting piece of the puzzle, right? Because the the written languages for a long time was just the province of these, I guess you call them sort of academics. Yeah. Um, 
And so it, it I guess it, that you think that's a, probably a filter for what gets written down. You know, yes. It's not, it's this stuff that's, that pertains to academics and the things that academics seem to care about rather than just the day-to-day stuff. Either, yeah, either the stuff that pertains to the academics or the things that they care about or the things that pertain to and are cared about by the people who pay them. Whether right. that is uh, political leaders, a.k.a. a monarch, or usually the church. So going back in farther back like to Cyrus and mm-hmm. even before him, the examples of writing that we have, mm-hmm. what were the things that were written down? What are some of the earliest yeah. examples of things that we've got that were written down, whether in cuneiform or mm-hmm. hieroglyphs or whatever did exist back in those days? Yeah, so that's a good question. It, it goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about um, if your society isn't up to much other than just farming to feed yourselves, we don't have anything worth writing down necessarily. Maybe you have some myths that kind of were descended from your ancestors and things like that. But it isn't until we start to get these sort of large sort of empire kingdoms like Egypt and Babylon that those leaders start to go, I really want my life and my recorded events to be remembered because I'm sort of pseudo divine or in some cases I'm actually divine. And therefore what I have to say is the word of God and therefore should be written down. Um, And those are the types of guys who can hire some scribes and write it all down and pay to have it all written down and preserved, uh, you know, carved into the side of a building or with all of these clay tablets and things like that. So what are some of the examples of those really old works that we have that are out there? So in Egypt, we have a lot of hymns. Um, These are going to be hymns to various gods that they... Uh, sort of asking that they might bless the particular pharaoh or asking that they might uh, smite pharaoh's enemies or something like that. It's all, you know, sort of for us today, religion and politics are pretty separate, especially in the United States. But for those people, it's one and the same. If you're a king and you're divine, you commune with the gods and you speak to the gods on behalf of the people and vice versa. And that's all sort of your duty And a lot of times you're the king and the high priest or, you know, something along those lines. Um, And so your words are the words of whoever your deity is or your myths are sort of political propaganda designed to establish a narrative of your supremacy. So we see a lot of that in Egypt. And that's worth writing down, right? And it's worth writing down. Yeah, it's exactly right. Right. It's a show of power. It's a it's a projection of power. Um we see a lot of that in, in hymns in Egypt. We see a lot of that in um, things like the Enuma Elish in Babylon uh, and uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh in Sumeria. Those are all these sort of mythical, pseudo-political works about the power and the majesty of whatever civilization they are espousing. So in terms of actual extant copies of those, like mm-hmm. the oldest thing we have, well, we have... a relatively old copy of Gilgamesh. Yep. And uh, there's some like fragments of the Inumilish, right? There's, I don't know what the exact dating of those are, but mm-hmm. the really the oldest stuff we have is the hieroglyphs. Is that That's right. A fair statement. Yeah. The oldest stuff we have is hieroglyphs. Um, there may have been writing older than this and there may have been cuneiform older than this. And s- that stuff is just lost to us. It's entirely possible that there is sort of a threshold of which without 
kind of proper care, that stuff just breaks down into grades. And so, yeah. you know, we don't know what that is, but our best guess is that this is sort of the oldest stuff that we have. And right, Epic of Gilgamesh, the, the sort of the oldest copy of that that we have, the sort of oldest uh, kind of reference to that is from about 2000 BC, maybe 2100. Um, so there would have been written or cuneiform copies of it sort of circulating or stored somewhere by around then. So it's likely a story that's much older than that. Which it's interesting because it's, um, you know, it's, it's a full story. It's mm -hmm. not just a, it's not just like a little record of something that happened. So that's it's right. unique and it's kind of unique in its own space as far as stories go, because it's, by it is, far yeah, the it's, oldest example we have of a story. It's a, it's an oldest. It's one of the oldest examples we have. It's also quite long. Um, the Enuma Elish, the full the full text of the Enuma Elish, uh, which is kind of the Babylonian creation myth, is is very long. is is longer than the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, but it's not anywhere near as old. It's maybe seventeen or eighteen hundred BC, rather than um, the oldest copy we have being from about twenty one twenty two hundred, but a lot of scholars try to date the Enuma Elish to closer to three or four thousand BC. I'm sorry, the the Epic of Gilgamesh to closer to three or four thousand BC, kind of where the story originated. And that's got to be, you know, pretty close back to when it actually happened. If there was a guy named Gilgamesh, yeah, we honestly can't say at that point. It's just right. you know, it's just complete guesswork. There may have been a guy named Gilgamesh. There may not have been a guy named Gilgamesh. We have no idea. There may as well have been a guy named Gilgamesh. What he did, no idea. Right. So compare all that mm -hmm. to our our oldest copies of of scriptural stories. Okay. Things we find in the Bible. Yep. Which I know come we, we our oldest copies come much later than that. Yeah. So the more the oldest full Bible that we have. Um, this is the oldest full Hebrew Bible, right? So we're just talking about the Old Testament. It's from around 1000 AD. Um, so it's very, very late. Now, there are fragments and bits and pieces and things from uh, much, much, much older than that. In particular, I'm thinking of a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but most of those were likely kind of created about somewhere between 0 and 100 BC, so still several hundred years, if not a thousand or more years, after when those things were originally supposed to have been written down. Um, so so not that contemporaneous with the original no, writings of them. No, not at all. Uh, there are a lot more copies of uh, the Hebrew Bible that have made their way into the modern world than of any other... Um, piece of literature from the ancient world, even any other piece of literature from the modern world. I think we, w I want to say we have maybe one, two, or three uh, manuscripts of some of the works of Shakespeare, and there are thousands of s fragments of pieces of the Old Testament that have made their way into the modern world. But again, yeah, not a full, the, yeah, the, not a full corpus of the Old Testament, one, right. and. Yeah, right. the the oldest full but, full Old Testament is from about a thousand A.D. So really, really yeah, late. Codex Linen Gratis, right? That's right. 
Yeah, which, I so mean, the, we uh, don't really know where that was from or what happened to it. It was just discovered right. in Russia, in Leningrad, right. now St. Petersburg. It's probably bought up by Catherine the Great or something in, in all of her art. Yeah, that's, it's that pretty likely did. that it was, yeah, just moved there. It's not originally from there. Um, but it's it's very late, comparatively. But we would say, it's probably fair to say that the extant copies we do have of these fragments um, from, you know, dating farther back in history, they do match up pretty well with the um, the text that we have, you know, even in the Leningrad Codex yeah. or in the modern text as well. By and large, yes. Um, there are differences. There, there really, really are uh, a lot of small differences. This verb is different here. This vowel is different there. Uh, this person is mentioned uh, here in this copy that is not mentioned in this copy. Um, but on the whole, they're remarkably similar, these these versions. Um, for example, there's two, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's two near full-length copies of the Book of Isaiah. Uh, and they have a good number of differences where this is... Um, you know, this word is spelled differently, or this word is omitted, or a word is added, or even a phrase is added. But a lot of those we can attribute to things like scribal error. If you're hand copying the scroll of Isaiah, you misspell something, but it's too much work to just scrap it and start over. And it's too valuable to scrap it and start over. So you just kind of move on. Sometimes you might cross it out and write your correction in the margin if you catch it. Um, Right. The overwhelming majority of the differences in these versions of the Old Testament that we have can be attributed to things like a scribal change or a scribal redaction, um, maybe to try and smooth over a particularly complex grammatical passage, or just an error, right? You know, Joe right. Scribe didn't have his coffee that morning and he sat down and spilled some ink all over the page, whatever it may have been. Uh, you just kind of keep going because there's no autocorrect and there's no uh, spell check and there's no backspace key. You just I'm I'm handwriting the Old Testament on paper. I'm, I'm just imagine how right. no, much well, work that would be. Especially on something like a on a scroll. Yeah. Where you know it's not like a page where you can just take out a that's take right. out a new it's page. One it's one like long, long, long piece. Docu- yep. Document. So um, changing changing directions on this mm-hmm. just a little bit. You know, so we have this this growth of writing and literacy that allows us to sort of nail things down a little bit more um, concretely around the world in terms of a global timeline. Mm -hmm. Um, Just thinking about that, uh, what are the, one of the things that kind of unites the world nowadays in some ways is that um, English is a fairly universal language. Mm -hmm. So thinking back on that in the ancient world, was there like a really early lingua franca um, that everybody started to speak that became kind of a a common business language Mm -hmm. for uh, parts of the ancient world? Yeah, so for the ancient Near East, which we've largely been talking about, it would have been uh, what we refer to today as Akkadian. Um, There's some Egyptian, uh, but that there's... Yeah, that didn't seem to ever catch on outside of Egypt. Yeah, it doesn't really catch on outside of Egypt simply because there's a lot of different Egyptian dialects. And so they're just sort of too complicated and confusing. But Akkadian ends up being the language that is spoken by um, most of the people in Babylon that sort of dominate the ancient world for a long time, and then Assyria as well. 
um, and ultimately some of the early Persians too. So outside so of most cuneiform, of our cuneiform writing is in Akkadian. Uh, right. Not necessarily. The cuneiform is sort of its own its own thing, um, mm-hmm. and it, the language is today called cuneiform, and we we really don't know how a lot of that stuff was pronounced. Um, okay. Akkadian is much but, more but of a traditional. But then, when you see Akkadian written, written did, did Akkadian so Akkadian use the cuneiform like style, or did it have its own? Yeah, early early Akkadian did, but um, pretty quickly they moved into having an alphabet. Hmm. So, like the Epic of Gilgamesh that we have, mm-hmm. or sorry, the Enuma Elish that we have in Akkadian, right? That's yeah. that's written with alphabet or cuneiform. Uh, we have copies of that that exist in cuneiform and copies of that that exist with a sort of proto-alphabet. Oh, okay. So so Akkadian becomes kind of the the language of the Mesopotamian area and mm-hmm. spreads all over the um, ancient world. Right. And do you think that allowed for some level of development of literacy and writing just because more people were... Like it was easier in a sense, it lowered the threshold for people learning and writing. Yeah, it takes a long time. Uh, yeah. Sort of p- getting more and more people to speak the same language, um, first and foremost, helps with trade. And then once you have trade going, then you have access to resources and materials. And then maybe you have access to the technology to come up with some writing, and then maybe you establish some sort of political peace, and then maybe you get more and more people reading and writing. But it sort of takes all of those things being in place and all of those things being not interrupted for a long period of time, like multiple generations. And so it's it's really difficult, and you don't really have a lingua franca like we think of the term lingua franca until Greece. Um, and it isn't even right. really and, the Greeks and, that and do that. It's what, you know... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say it's Alexander the Great, like taking over and sort of forcing it on people in some level, right? That's right. It's Alexander the Great, and then it's the Romans. Just right. We all speak Greek, and yeah, there's Latin, but you know, and you uh, Jews continue to speak your Hebrew and your Aramaic, and you Egyptians continue to speak Egyptian, but we all got Greek going on, and most of us have Latin going on as well, uh, just because you needed to to sort of function in the empire, right? Yeah, so it's kind of like the fair to say that Alexander the Great spreads this language that everybody begins to adopt and the philosophies behind it in a way. Mm-hmm. And then the Romans reinforce that and, and add Latin on That's top right. of it. So, well, that does set the stage for some of the other topics we're going to talk about in the podcast coming up, which cool. include the rise of ancient Greece and, of course, of Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Got to get through the Greece, Greeks fighting the Persians before we get to him, though. So right, be there's some a lot of that. Topics. Well, we've been going long enough, I think, on this topic, but there's definitely more to say. One of the things I do want to come back to and maybe talk to you about in a future episode mm-hmm. would be um, talking about the uh, Septuagint, the oh, right. Old Testament written in Greek, because that's that's kind of a separate topic all on its own. Yeah, sure. It's worth bringing back up, and I know you spent some time with that. I have, yeah. It's it's. It's hard to sort of talk about the transmission of the scriptures into our modern 
English and other languages without kind of passing through talking about the Septuagint. Right. Really important set mm -hmm. of work. Well, appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, sure. And um, look forward to having you back again when we get around to the Septuagint and maybe some other topics as well. Okay. Sounds good. I look forward to it. All right. Well, thanks, C. Appreciate your time. Yeah. All right. Bye. <laughs> bye.